0: America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to episode forty eight of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Happy Thanksgiving, the best American holiday. I am, of course, thankful for a great deal, not least the glorious victory that the Jacksonville Jaguars staged last Sunday against the evil empire, the Tennessee Titans. Perhaps the most perfidious tyranny in the history of the world. Look, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary, very pretty phrase. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you this much. They pale in comparison to Jacksonville Jaguars 34, Tennessee Titans 14, which is the most... Delicious of all sentences in the English language. Even Shakespeare couldn't manage that one. Perhaps because he's a Seahawks fan. Now, as is typical, I have been thinking about what I'm thankful for this year. And this got me thinking, of course, about America and its constitution. And that got me thinking about an answer that Justice Antonin Scalia gave in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee a few years ago, in which he made the case that the heart and soul of the American system is not the Bill of Rights, but is in fact separation of powers. And indeed, that it's our separation of powers that ultimately keeps America Free. Here's what Scalia said. So,
1: when,
0: when I speak to these groups,
1: the first point I, I make, and I, I think it's even a little more fundamental than the one that uh, uh, Stephen has just uh, put forward, I, I ask them, what do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in, in our constitution that 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 makes us what we are. And I guarantee you that the response I will get, and you will get this from almost any American, including the woman that he was talking to at the supermarket, the answer would be freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights. But then I tell them, if. If you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. (laughs) The Bill of Rights of of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who is, who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course, just words on paper, what, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is what our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787, they didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. So the, the real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America is mm-hmm. the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more.
0: Now, ever since I heard that, I have been convinced that Scalia was right. And I also think that he's right when he says, as he did in the same address, that we simply do not talk about this enough. That we quite rightly lionize the Bill of Rights, but we ignore separation of powers. So I thought... That I would, on this week's podcast, redress the balance. And to help me in this endeavor, I asked Steve Simpson, who is the Director of Separation of Powers Litigation at the Pacific Legal Foundation, to chat with me. My guest today is Steve Simpson, a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Steve, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. How are you doing, Charlie? Good to be here. I'm doing well, thank you. So let's start right at the beginning on this big and important topic with a question that you might get from an alien coming down from a foreign planet, at least if that foreign planet didn't have our American constitution. What is separation of powers? Sure, that's a
2: really good place to start. And I think actually a lot of people don't know really what it's all about. And basically, there's a couple ways you can think about it. One is it's the structure of the American Constitution. Another is that it is the principle of dividing powers of government among different branches and then essentially kind of setting them at opposed to one another or setting them in competition. That's the idea of checks and balances. And the goal there is to divide and conquer in a sense. It's to prevent any one branch of government from getting too much power so that it can, in the words of James Madison, become tyrannical. And he, as he put it, the concentration of all powers and government in one department is the definition of tyranny. So, but let me break that down just a little bit. What we're, we're talking about here are the three fundamental powers of government. That is, making law—that's Congress, executing or enforcing the law—that's the President. He's the executive branch, and then that's judging disputes among either those branches or between the government and the citizens, or among the citizens. And that's the judiciary, and and you know the Supreme Court is the is the primary one, but of course we have lower federal courts as well. And the idea of the Constitution is keeping those powers separate, especially keeping the power of the legislature and the executive separate, because those are really the powers that are the biggest threat to liberty. And of course, the founders were were big fans of liberty and limited government. A lot of people view limited government as a matter of individual rights, the bill of rights. These are the rights that we have as against the government. Another way to think about it is enumerated powers. The federal government, at least, only has certain limited powers. But the separation of powers was really the primary function or the primary way that the founders sought to prevent government from becoming tyrannical or just amassing too much power. I'll just give a quick analogy to kind of give a sense of what this would look like or what it does look like because these powers have broken down. With a sort of simple analogy, everybody understands that when they get pulled over by a police officer, let's say for a traffic violation, the police officer is just enforcing the law. He doesn't get to make up the speed limit on the spot. He certainly doesn't get to decide what the speed limit is or pass the law. And finally, if he gives you a ticket, you go before a court and then you can challenge it and and the court decides whether you in fact violated the law. So if you combine all the powers of government, it would be tantamount to a police officer getting to pull you over decide on the spot what the speed limit is, decide that you violated. And not only that, then go to court and decide that your challenge is not valid because he thinks that you actually violated the law that he made up on the spot. That's what happens when separation of powers breaks down. And of course, most people would look at that and say, wait, that's crazy. We can't have one guy doing all of that work or one department doing all that work. But in very real ways, and we'll obviously dig into this, that's kind of what's happened to our government during the 20th century and
0: and beyond. So that makes clear why you wouldn't want one person, a dictator, an executive, in your analogy, a police officer, fulfilling these functions. Why wouldn't you want a legislature executing the laws it writes?
2: There's a couple reasons for this. One is an efficiency sort of thing. A legislature has to be composed in a certain way. It's a body of representatives that is supposed to represent at the very least the consent of the govern. That is, it's it's representing the views of an entire population of people. And it's democratically elected, obviously, and that the laws are passed through a particular process that's outlined and embodied in the Constitution. So as a practical matter, having that body actually try to make the executive decisions that the president needs to make is cumbersome to say the least, and we have a lot of history under the Articles of Confederation during the Revolutionary War it was to put it mildly a mess in in many ways and so when they devised the constitution they decided they, there needed to be an executive you can think of him as kind of the ceo of the government and that the executive function enforcing the law is separate from the legislative function so one is just it wouldn't work to have a body like congress trying to enforce the law it would be a mess the other is you want to introduce sort of as much objectivity into the process as possible and having a president Interpreting and enforcing the laws and making the kinds of prosecutorial decisions separately from Congress introduces yet another layer of, you can think of it as objectivity or distance or just separating the power so that you're not getting a concentration of power in one body. And, and just to complete the point, the founders thought the legislative branch was the most dangerous branch because it got to make law. It got to say, what are the rules that are going to govern our lives and that's really an awesome power. So dividing that, preventing the legislature from also enforcing the law, because what could happen is, say it could pass a law, and then it could say, hey, you know, what we really meant to say was X, Y, and Z. You know, we, you know, We wrote the law in one way, but in fact, now we're going to go back and kind of amend it on the fly in the execution of it or in the enforcement of it. That would defeat the entire process of having people's representatives engaging in what Congress has to do in order to pass the laws. If if they could just
0: rewrite it on the fly, it would be like the cop making up the law on the spot. So you've hinted twice that while this all makes sense, it's not necessarily how the system works, and you've implied that there was a fall of sorts. So let me ask you two questions uh, related. The first is, what happened? How did we get to a position in which this isn't working as it should? And the second question is, did it ever work as it should?
2: Yeah, those are really good questions. So let me take the first one, obviously. Um, There's a couple ways to put this, but it's taken a good long time since this is roughly the 20th century throughout the 20th century separation powers were eroded and and you have a few things going on in the 20th century obviously it's an explosive growth of america as a nation and this is happening in the 19th century really so late 19th century and in through the 20th century america is just growing it's growing in size and territory it's growing in Economic power, so to speak. I mean, our economy is growing by leaps and bounds. It's growing in population. It's growing in influence. And so we we go from a relatively small kind of agrarian country in the you know at the founding to an industrial and economic powerhouse, a world, a superpower. So there's a whole lot more going on in government. And along with that, for various reasons that we can get into, if you want to, is the notion that with government growing, government needs to do more. So in the in the late 19th century. There is a sort of burgeoning movement of intellectuals who are very skeptical of the the founders' view that government should be limited and essentially, and I'm I'm oversimplifying here, but protect rights and do things like protect the, the country from invasion, you know, so strong defense, protect individual rights, and otherwise leave people alone to pursue their lives. That is at least the essence of the conception of the founders, In the late 19th century, you get a group of intellectuals, generally speaking, I refer to them as the progressives, but you can think of them as a broader group, but the progressives are individuals who really embody and typify these ideas. They have a much more aggressive view of government. Government should be controlling more of people's lives, it should be making decisions for people, it should be managing the economy, it should just run more of of people's lives than the founders thought. Now, in order to get that, what you need is a government that both has more power and can exercise that power efficiently or or easily. What the separation of powers does is it makes it hard for government to pass laws. It makes it hard for government to function in a certain way. In the sense that dividing powers makes the process cumbersome, and it's supposed to make the process cumbersome. The process of passing laws and restricting—you could put it as restricting what people do—but in any event, just passing laws because the founders thought that the lawmaking power was awesome and and it should be as contained as possible to leave people as free as possible. The progressives had a very different view. They wanted a government that was much more powerful and could manage much more of individual life and economic life. And so they saw the fe- separation of powers as a real impediment. There are a number of intellectuals who, who typify this view. Woodrow Wilson is probably the best example both because he was president, but he was also an intellectual, but he was first and foremost an intellectual. And he and a growing group of thinkers in the late 19th and early 20th century set about to kind of undermine the whole idea of separation of powers and limited government. And they saw separation of powers as the chief impediment to accomplishing a government that was more activist, that was more empowered and could manage more of the lives of the citizens and do more and just be more active. They sort of set out a blueprint, uh, so to speak, for undermining the separation of powers and chiefly combining, in a sense, the the executive and the legislative power and getting the judiciary out of the way. Because in the early 20th century, we had a judiciary that was much more interested in enforcing the constitution, at least the separation of powers, but other provisions as well. So they made it difficult for government to grow the way Wilson and others wanted and so their whole plan was we need to, in various ways, get rid of the separation of powers, allow Congress to transfer more lawmaking power to the executive in the form of regulations, which is a whole lot of what we have today, and get the judiciary out of the business of checking the other branches and keeping them cabin to their functions, So, I mean, I can go into more detail, but that's kind of the backdrop to it. And then through the 20th century, what you get is just an explosive growth of government in general, but in particular, regulatory agencies, the alphabet soup of agencies throughout the federal government, the FDA, the SEC, you know, all sorts, the FTC, others, and a government that is no longer really passing laws anymore. Congress is passing very broad laws that essentially say, and again, I'm oversimplifying, hey, administrative agency you pass rules within this broad context, you regulate this industry or that industry, and then we get a proliferation of regulations. And so government today is not so much by Congress and really even the president as a president, it's a giant number of regulatory agencies that are passing rules on the fly. It's a much more abbreviated process. And we just get a proliferation of thousands and thousands and thousands of rules that govern more and more of American life.
0: So let me ask you about that, because I hear two big criticisms of the view that you're outlining here from modern-day progressives and indeed from the original progressives as well. One is that separation of powers in the American context makes it hard to pass things. That's the basic critique. But the other is that it makes it hard to write laws that work in a modern society and that we therefore need to delegate and to write really broad laws, to send lots of power over to the executive branch so that it can use its judgment and that this is inevitable, that it's maybe even regrettable but that it's inevitable that if we don't offload lots of questions to the executive and leave the details up to the president who is elected, whether that's regulation or foreign policy or powers that might be used in a crisis or whatever it is, that the modern world demands that Congress outlines its wishes in broad colors and that experts in agencies fill in the rest why is that wrong
2: yeah so on the first one it's right in the sense that your first question was does it make it hard or doesn't it make it hard and the answer is absolutely and i would add to that amen to that thank goodness that it makes it hard because it should be hard to pass laws and and in any event that's what the founders whole purpose in separation of powers and creating the separation of powers was was to make it hard and, and we know this because we can read the federalist papers is the best example madison and hamilton talk about this madison in particular and i think it's federalist the 50s sort of late 47 through 52 or so he talks about the legislative branch and making it difficult for congress to pass laws because again we have to remember that the lawmaking power is an awesome power is that it's broken down to its essence it's the power to force people to do things and to put them in prison or take away their livelihoods if they don't do those things. So it's a really serious power. And the founders had a whole conception of government that, again, the essence of it was the primary purpose of government, and this is in the, in the Declaration of Independence, is to protect people's rights. So there's definitely a role for the power of forcing people, combating crime, let's say, dealing with foreign aggressors, and some other things, and a government designed to settle disputes, such as in the civil context of what the courts do, but otherwise, our government should be relatively small, and the scope or sphere of liberty should be very, very broad. Uh, so yes, it makes sense to to make lawmaking difficult, and that was by design. And I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Now, in terms of the idea that in modern times, we need a government that has more power and administrative agencies that can exercise that power more nimbly, I just reject that. That is a deeper argument and it's a more normative argument in the sense of what sort of a government should we have and how does one figure that out. And the founders had thoughts of that. The philosophers and the thinkers that they relied on John Locke being one had views on that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. We can get more into it if you want to. But what I would say is is this two points. One is kind of a practical point. Another is a little bit more I'll just hint a little bit at some of the normative points. The practical point is this. The Constitution says what it says. It is organized and structured the way it is. Everybody knows that. And this is the thing that I mentioned Wilson before. Wilson was a smart man. I disagree with probably everything he thought, but he was very bright. And one of the things about he and his fellow progressives that is actually really interesting is they were absolutely above board and honest about this. And what they said in essence was, here's what the founders thought. And they actually lay it out in real detail. If you want to read and understand the founders, one of the best ways to do is to read their critics among the progressives, because they were very honest about this. They said essentially what I just said about what the founders' views were. And then they argued, but this is all wrong. It doesn't work, and we need to get rid of it. And you know, here's our plan for government, which is the sort of more progressive, more activist kind of government. But they were at least honest about it. And so part of my response to that sort of argument is: okay, look. That's fine if you think it. I mean, I don't think it's fine. I think it's bad. I think it would lead to very bad things. And I think we're seeing some of the examples today. But at the very least, let's be honest about it. Let's get rid of the constitution we have. Let's enact and ratify a new constitution that allows this broad government. Because what we have now is both dishonest because nobody admits, nobody wants to admit that this is not consistent with the original constitution of or the constitution, how it was, the, the way it was written. And we can just be clear with the American people that in fact we're changing this and the and the type of government we want is an entirely different kind of government. The way it works now is it's a mess because we're we have a lot of just sort of contradictory things going on, especially when the when the Supreme Court tries to adjudicate cases, because what you have really is two different types of government. You have the original structure, and then you have what we refer to as the administrative or the regulatory state, which is a kind of entirely separate form of government that is exists awkwardly and that's the best thing one can say within this original constitutional structure so it's it's kind of the worst of all possible worlds now i don't want to go beyond that i don't want to i wouldn't want to concede that the progressives or modern people who are interested in a more activist government are correct but what we have now is just a mess so let me leave it at that and then you know you can uh, tease out any of these other threads, if you want.
0: Well, I just wonder, on the practical side of it, what you think would happen if we reformed this? Because I agree with you on the legal question in that the law is the law, and until it's not the law, it's the law, and it must be upheld. And I think that every time someone openly says that they wish to repeal this amendment or that amendment or change the Constitution, that until they do it, they haven't. So I'm with you on that, and I hope that the courts uphold it. What I'm interested in is whether there is any truth to the idea that the modern world requires a great deal of delegation and that therefore there's a, we have uh, created a problem by not amending the constitutional order.
2: I think the answer to that is no, and I'll try to put this, it's a big topic, but yeah. I actually think, so the, the argument is this, the modern world is complex, and because it's so complex, we need a new system of government to sort of rise to the challenge, and that's one that requires lots of rules and regulations because we have to deal with the complexities, the so-called complexities of modern life. Now, if there's two perspectives from which one can approach that claim, and I really think that what perspective one brings to the table, what background assumptions about government and what government should do, ultimately ends up informing whether or not the modern world is so complex that we need a different kind of government I'll make it as simple as I can. If you approach what a government is and what sort of a government we want, if you approach it from the premise that the government's role is to sort of organize society and in some way manage the stuff that is happening in society, then it is absolutely correct, that, that is, I concede this totally, that we would need a government that could change rules very, very quickly. You'd really need bureaucrats out there making the rules up on the spot to actually rise to that challenge. It would be a miserable failure. It would be something like the Soviet Union or any other socialist or communist country. And I think there are lessons to be learned from that. But if you start from the premise... The government's role is to manage society the way a company manages its business. Yeah, of course, you need a very complex government or a government that has more power and can act, quote, more efficiently, but in any event, pass rules and pass a whole lot of rules very, very quickly. But I reject that premise entirely. If you start from the premise that the founders started from, which is the role of government is to give people the freedom and preserve freedom and a rule of law such that those people can pursue their own lives... If you look at it from that perspective, modern society is so less complex and an easier place to live than societies in the olden days because of technological advancement, because of industrial and economic growth. It's way easier to live today and therefore far less complex to live. I mean, just think of how hard it was to get to work. You know, I drove 30 miles from Manassas, Virginia. It would have taken me two days to get here. I would have had to have meals and you know camp and all kinds of other things. I mean, that's just a small example. Uh, but the point is the premise that government needs to manage people's lives is just wrong. Now, it's a big debate. I don't expect people to hear me say that and say, oh, okay, Simpson, let's get rid of the entire regulatory state because there's a third problem here, which is, okay, even if somebody agreed with me, how do we unmake this bed? How do we walk things back? That's a hard question, but I would put it this way. At the very least, what the court should start doing is taking the Constitution seriously and pushing back to Congress the responsibility to pass laws because a lot of what's happened here even if we assume that there need to be more laws than I would want, let's say, there's all kinds of other effects of the breakdown and separation of powers. Among them, Congress gets lazy and the entire incentive structure is for Congress to make fewer and fewer decisions and hand more of those decisions over to regulators, which leads to a host of other problems. So yes, I recognize moving backwards, let's say, or, or, or reform in the direction that I would like to see it is a giant enterprise and will take decades, maybe as long as it took to get here. It took us a century to get here. It may take us a century to get back. But my view is we have to go that way if we want to have what I view as good government
0: and a free society as the founders envisioned. So for all of the perfidy of Woodrow Wilson, and I'm entirely with you on that, <laughs> his vision has ultimately only come about in part or in full because people let it. Yes. Congress's power was not taken from legislators who were screaming bloody murder. Congress has often acquiesced in the theft. It's given away its power. In fact, one of the things that astonishes me the most in all of our politics is the sight of a senator or a representative or a group of them Demanding the president usurp their power. We saw this with student loans. (laughs) We see this on foreign policy. We see it with tariffs. We saw it with the eviction moratorium. We saw it during COVID. Congressmen writing to the president demanding that he act without their authority. Now, if you go back to the founding... One of the things that I find the most impressive about the founders is their grasp of human nature. They were conservative with a small C. They were so diametrically opposed to the architects of the French Revolution in this regard that it's astonishing. They did not believe that you could perfect man. They thought that the sins of men, however they conceived of that, were common, that people were the same in 1787 as they had been in the Roman Empire. And as a result of that, they conceived of a system of government that would harness people's vices, one of which being ambition. I have to ask, were they wrong? Did they fail to understand that people might not be ambitious? Because a lot of the time, when you Look at the actors involved in the problems that you're describing. You see people who are not ambitious and who are not jealous of their prerogatives. They may have been elected to the Senate... But they don't particularly care about being a senator. They don't particularly care about the institutional power of the Senate. What they care about is outcomes. And so if they can get the president or an executive agency to do what their own body will not, because there aren't the votes or there isn't the impetus or whatever, they will take that over the maintenance of their own body. Were the founders wrong about ambition and the role that it plays?
2: I don't think they were, but that's a really, I mean, that's a really good question. I don't think they were, but I think that the way that that ambition manifests today is perhaps a little bit different than what the founders had envisioned. I mean, there's a couple things going on here, but one of them is the senators and congressmen, members of Congress that you're talking about, who are calling uh, You know, during the eviction moratorium and student loans. That's, those are two great examples, by the way. These are people who are now exercising a kind of power that is perhaps less direct, but I think ultimately it is still power, right? So I, I would think of it as more like a faction issue. They are part of a faction that yeah. knows they can influence the president to do certain things, and they know they are part of that faction or cabal I like like the word cabal better because it seems more nefarious or (laughs) I don't know what. But I mean, they know that they're part of the in-crowd that is exercising the power to achieve. And you're right. They're interested in outcomes, ultimately. The outcomes do drive a lot of this. But I don't think any of these guys would be willing to step out of the limelight, not be the one calling on the president to do these things because they get all kinds of accolades. They get all of the benefits of power without the trappings of power. And, and another way to put this is that they get to exercise power without responsibility. There's actually a book by that name by, I forget the author at the moment, but basic idea, and a lot of people have written on this, is that um, the uh, that when Congress delegates its power to administrative agencies, it gets to exercise that power. It gets to stand in front of the cameras, let's say. It gets to be reelected, the, the individuals do. And they get to basically say, we're solving problems. But anytime anything goes wrong, what do they do? They drag all these regulators, these bureaucrats before them, and they yell at them. And and you know you never hear the regulators say, hey, you're the ones who, who wrote the laws. Like We're just trying to figure this stuff out. You told us we're supposed to do this. And now every time something goes wrong or we don't do what you claimed you wanted us to do, you, you drag us in here and yell at us, which is just, it's sort of political theater. But I think that's a large part of the issue. and And I think in modern times... Congress has seen and members of Congress have seen that they can get the best of both worlds. They really don't have to do the difficult work of passing legislation and getting it through both houses of Congress, which is its own host of difficulties. But just writing the legislation and figuring out what they should be addressing, what they should not address is not an easy task in itself. They get to forego all of that, but they still get all of the trappings of power and they never have to really take the blame for it, so I think that's part of it too, but i there's deeper issues there. You've raised some really interesting questions, but I think that's still the dynamic, and I don't think the founders were were wrong about that and one way I would or i think one of the things that might signal that is that they're one thing they're all unified in is continuing to concentrate more and more power in government. and I think that if the founders were wrong, none of the you know the elected leaders in, uh, in government would really be as interested in, uh, in as, as much power as they're, they're asking government to exercise. All
0: right, let me ask you about another paradox or what seems to be a paradox at the very least. We have, at the federal level, a whole bunch of agencies, uh, alphabet organizations. There is a habit that I've noticed in the press and in our politics, of insisting that these agencies that are housed within the executive branch, many of which were created by Congress, are independent. That's the word you hear. Independent. Mm -hmm. If you look at our system of government, they can't be independent, because if they're independent, (laughs) then they're not accountable to a democratically elected branch. If the Department of Justice, for example is some independent fourth branch of government that is not under the auspices of the legislature or the executive or the judiciary, then who's in charge of it? But at the same time, the idea of those agencies being the plaything of the president quite rightly makes people feel uncomfortable in that you don't want to yield too much power to one person you don't want a department of justice to become a department of the president how do we reconcile that paradox i don't know that it
2: can be reconciled in the sense that this is part of the problem in the breakdown of separation of powers okay is that we have created these so-called independent agencies and they they really there is no place for them in our constitutional scheme period and this is why we're now so i mean You trace the history of this, it starts with the FTC. I think the FTC is the first independent agency in the 1930s or early 20th century in any event. And and the the heads of the FTC are, are protected from removal by the president. The Supreme Court upholds this in a case that's actually interesting called Humphrey's executor. And it's interesting in that the Supreme Court justices that ended up uphold, upholding this, Justice Sutherland, I think, wrote the opinion. He's one of the so-called four horsemen. These are, this was a criticism among the New Dealers or by the New Dealers of a number of Supreme Court justices who were seen to be arch conservatives and opposed to the New Deal. And in certain ways they were, yet they sanction or uphold what is, to my mind, and I think a lot of other people, an egregious violation of the separation of powers by allowing these independent agencies. Whose heads can't be fired by the president and therefore can't be controlled by the president, allowing them to exist. And I really think what was going on then is that they saw, certainly Justice Sutherland did, that President FDR was exercising gigantic amounts of power, and that I really think they feared something like a dictator arising in America. And they thought if we're going to have these agencies, they really need to be independent of the president so that he can't come in and just install his own kind of cronies in these agencies and move the country in the wrong direction. The ironic result is that it ended up creating independent agencies that are accountable to no one. And that's, I mean, that's a really serious problem, obviously, or I hope it's obvious under the constitution because ultimately power is supposed to reside with the people, popular sovereignty and consent of the governed. And anytime you disconnect those who are executing power or passing laws from popular accountability, you've severed that connection, and we no longer have a government that operates on the basis of of consent of the government. But yeah, you can't reconcile that. So I I agree with you totally on that. It's it's a paradox and one, one of the symptoms of the breakdown of separation of powers.
0: This is a related question, I think. What is the unitary executive theory? I remember under Bill Barr, there was a lot of freak out in the press that he was an advocate of the unitary executive theory. What is that?
2: The simple version of the unitary executive is that the president exercises all of the executive authority. He doesn't have to answer to others, except in ways that the constitution explicitly states when he's exercising that power. Now, there's a kind of question begging nature to that even description, because then the question becomes, well, what power are we talking about? What is the executive power and how much power... Is the president supposed to be able to exercise? And there are sort of you can you can read on various versions of the unitary executive, strong versions and weak versions. But what it comes down to is when you're talking about the executive power, the president is the CEO of the government, and he makes final decisions on things that are by their nature executive. The easiest way to see this, I think, is in he's the commander in chief in wartime, or just overseeing and commanding the military. If we're in a war. The president gets to make the decisions. At least he's the commander in chief, and he points all the, the generals, et cetera, and, the, and he oversees all military operations. And Congress has no authority to meddle in the kinds of decisions that he's making. And I think that's absolutely right. I agree with it. And, and yet, I'm a pretty much a libertarian and a small government kind of guy. But my view is, bottom line, is both it's it's a virtue of our system that we have an executive that has the authority to do executive things and carry out the business of government and take the lead. uh, It's necessary, and we actually have examples through history of what goes wrong when the president can't do that. There's still an open question about what exactly is the limit of the executive power. We could talk about particular contexts, but I think that the easiest one is to view it as uh, foreign policy issues. And then, of course, appointing all of the subsidiary officers, the officers under his control, heads of departments, that kind of thing, and then setting policy that is executive policy, the president should have all that power.
0: Do you think that the president of the United States can fire anyone he wants within the executive branch for any reason? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is, well, you asked it as can, and the answer right now is No, it's I know it's question. not. But, but look, yeah. Donald Trump has proposed changing the rules around this area, and this is always cast as some sort of incipient fascism. But would that yeah. be a fairly straightforward application of the unitary executive?
2: Yes, I think absolutely. And I mean, I think it is, yes, I yes is the simple answer. And it's it's entirely consistent with early case law case called Myers versus United States, the Supreme Court, this had to do with the post, I think it was the Postmaster General, but whether or not he could be removed. And and the basic argument is pretty simple. If the president can't fire his officers or exec you know, the the, the heads of departments, whatever, all of the people who run the executive branch, then he doesn't have control over those people. And if he doesn't have control, he's the elected official in charge of the executive branch then the people no longer have control. So it is the, it's the it's a one way or an avenue, and a very important one, by which we exercise popular accountability, that is, accountability to the citizens of the, of the nation, by ensuring that all of the president's officers are answerable to him. And that means he gets to hire them, and he gets to fire them.
0: At 30,000 feet, are we going in the right direction on this issue of separation of powers, or the wrong direction, or are we treading water?
2: I would say we're going in the right direction with a few caveats. So, as I said earlier, we've been moving for most of the 20th, well, well most of the 20th century and beyond into the 21st century in the wrong direction. Why I'm saying that we're moving in the right direction now is maybe maybe it's overly optimistic, but what I'm focusing on now is the Supreme Court has finally... Since the, it, we have not had a, a Supreme Court better for separation of powers, meaning taking separation of powers as seriously as this court does, and I'm talking about the six conservatives primarily, although not not exclusively, since 1935, it's the best court on this issue since then. And for that reason, maybe I should put it as: there's good reason to hope we will be moving in the right direction. And it looks like so far the court, since you know Justice Barrett was appointed creating the, the six conservatives is moving in the right direction and doing most things right. It's not perfect, but uh, I'll take good over perfect. So yeah, I think in that sense, we're moving in the right direction. But just to circle back to one other point you made earlier, and just to make this point explicit, you were talking about Congress and and Congress not being ambitious and and guarding its own power. And part of what that raises is where does the fault for this lie? And I often put it as, look, the fault, so to speak, or the reason we are where we are is because this is what people wanted. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it is just true. And when I say people, I don't just mean the people who run the government. I mean, people in general, certainly yeah. intellectuals, but I mean, the populace has gone along with this. I mean, look, if you ask the man on the street, should government have the power to regulate industry the way it does to do you know all the things it does? The answer is invariably yes, even if people will complain about certain things. And certainly in you know when they, they perceive something going wrong they immediately go to the government and say why didn't you fix this we have a student loan problem why haven't you erased student debt nobody really cares about separation of powers so we are where we are as much because the departments of government have given up their power or they have in some way diluted separation of powers and certainly the courts have been accomplices you know sometimes you could say they were the main drivers in certain circumstances but that's debatable but it's also because the people want it that way so are we moving in the right direction? People haven't really changed their minds in major ways about separation of powers that I've seen, but maybe there are signals that people are starting to take it seriously beyond just the six conservatives on the Supreme Court, and, and there are legislators and, and intellectuals out there as well, and people like me who do this for a living. But there's calls for optimism, is, is
0: my ultimate point. One of the cases that's coming up, I don't know if you're optimistic about it or not, is tipped to have a large effect on a famous case called Chevron. Now, I don't think we're going to see many protests outside the Supreme Court over this one. Maybe (laughs) I'll be wrong. What is Chevron? What does it have to do with separation of powers? What would it change if it came out in the way the plaintiffs hope?
2: Sure. So Chevron, simply put, is a doctrine that holds that when a statute that empowers an administrative agency, so it's a regulatory statute— is ambiguous in some way. And the court could decide the question at issue, and I can tell you a little bit more about what's going on in the Loper Bright question case to make it concrete, but could go one of two ways that what the court should do is defer to the agency's interpretation of the law. Now, what that means is it's essentially saying, the court is essentially saying, look, this is a, an ambiguous statutory question so I'm going to allow the executive branch, the ones who enforce the law, to decide what the law is. So to hearken back to my police officer analogy, this is the cop getting to decide what the speed limit is because it's not entirely clear whether it's 25 or 50 or whatever. But And that's a problem because what the courts are supposed to do you – know, I mean this is the the simplest – but most core version of what they are supposed to do is say what the law is. That's from a case called Marbury versus Madison, a very old case that undergirds judicial review in this country, and it just makes sense. That's why we have courts, to decide difficult questions of law, and statutory questions are are, are one of the, the primary ones. So in the Chevron case in the 1980s, the court took a major move in the direction of giving even more power to these executive agencies by allowing them, when the question is a close call, and it's difficult to decide. To ultimately, you know, the court has to side with them. Now, the incentive there is perverse because what it does is two things. One, if you're Congress that wants to give more power to an agency, you write a law that is purposely ambiguous, and that will give them even more power than you've handed them explicitly. And then they get to figure out what the laws are and, and pass regulations pursuant to that power. It makes Congress's job really easy; you can just write. You know, simple laws that that essentially say we're going to create a couple of agencies now go out and regulate consumer finance, which has happened in dodd-frank after the financial downturn or collapse of two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. And Congress does that more and more. And there are other deference doctrines that also apply to regulation. So it creates this incentive throughout the government to write vague laws that people really can't understand that they can basically make up interpretations on the fly. This is a problem for separation of powers really in all three ways. So it incentivizes Congress to write broad and vague laws, which which means Congress is not actually making the law. The executive branch is making the law by regulation, which accretes or, or gives more power to the administrative state and the executive branch to both make law and enforce law. And then it also takes away from the courts their role of independently judging and therefore providing a check on the power of the other branches. I said earlier that the founders thought that Congress was the most dangerous branch. They thought the courts were the least dangerous branch, but still an extremely important branch, least dangerous because they didn't really exercise power. They just exercised the power of judgment. But if they give that up, that gives even more power to the other branches. So that's the essence of Chevron. Loper Bright may overturn that, I am optimistic the court will do something positive from my standpoint, either narrow chevron or overturn it entirely. And what that would ultimately do is put courts back in the place of exercising their power of judgment. And and more concretely, they would have to wrestle with difficult statutory questions. And as I think about it as a lawyer, they would have to do their damn jobs again. And that would be a very good thing.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Last question practical question, perhaps. Difficult question, certainly. Other than asking the court to police this area better, because of course, even if we get that decision and Chevron is overturned or partially overturned, there will be other issues. Or electing people who are committed to separation of powers. Are there any other structural ways that we can fix this i ask because whenever i'm asked the question by listeners which constitutional amendment would you add if you had the power to do so i always say and yes it's a joke that i would write in the margins of the existing constitution over and over again and we really mean it yeah So is this an and-we-really-mean-it question, or is this something we could actually do, change the Constitution, change the way that Congress works, to materially improve the functioning of separation of powers in the US? I think that it's an and-we-mean-it question. And I have to be
2: honest, I haven't really thought, is there something you could do that would improve separation of powers, other than, like, I mean, Congress could change the Chevron Doctrine if it wanted to, because it's... uh, I think it's within Congress's power, but leave that aside because that's not, you know, it looks like the Supreme Court's going to do that. I don't really think there's anything major. I don't think anybody really reads Article One and says to themselves, I don't really know what the you know, who gets to exercise the legislative power. And I don't think anybody misunderstands the role of the courts or what there are questions about what the executive power is, but honestly, if Congress is doing its job, the sort of range of think about it as prosecutorial discretion when we're talking about enforcing laws. It's not really a hard question. All of these things are either explicit or implicit in the Constitution, and they've been known for a long time. So the idea that you're going to write something on top of that, that now is the magic fix for where everything went wrong, I think is just not going to happen. It's naive. And it really, I think, misunderstands why things went wrong. I said before, this is ultimately, I mean, I think of it as a... uh, it's like a philosophical change in in, the, in how people viewed government, and ultimately, the progressives were very explicit about what they wanted to do. It took them a whole lot longer than they thought, but they won the, the battle, if not the war, and they ended up changing hearts and minds to their view of what government should look like. The ultimate battle, or maybe it's the war, is we have to change hearts and minds, and that's a very unsatisfactory answer for a lot of people. But I got nothing better than that, other than you know, we'll do, as lawyers, what we can do to get the courts to move to where they, they should be and should have been. But that's not going to solve everything. If the people are really want a government that functions the way our administrative state does, they're going to get it, ultimately. So we really have to educate people. Much as I hate that to be the answer, I wish it was a better one, but I think that's true.
0: All right. Steve Simpson, thank you so much for coming on the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Thanks for having me. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to Steve Simpson for talking to me about separation of powers. Thank you to you for listening. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next week.